kept saying this kind of afterwards, I don't think it would have made that, that the impact would not have been that if it had been just the two of us. It was the, uh, the collective mm-hmm. moment. It was the fact that he also had gotten phone calls from women in his life yeah. who had said to him, this is real. Yeah. What you are hearing is not the story of one woman. This is a collective experience that she's allowing you to understand through her story. Citizen Podcast. Welcome, y'all. I'm Carrie Kelly, and we're here today with a special live audience broadcast with Ana Maria Archila. She is the fierce organizer and brave soul who stood up to Senator Jeff Flake during the Kavanaugh hearings and showed us all how democracy works and what it means to be a citizen. All that and more on Citizen Podcast. Ana Maria Archila is a resistance icon. She's known by many as the lady in the elevator after her confrontation with Senator Jeff Flake went viral during the confirmation hearings for Justice Kavanaugh. But that wasn't her first rodeo. Ana Maria has been disrupting, bird-dogging, and advocating for human rights and dignity since she emigrated here at the age of 17. And she teaches us that disruption is essential in slowing things down and getting people in power to listen. Everyday people speaking truth to power is what this country is all about. And courage is contagious. We saw that in the wake of Me Too, in the wave of stories that flooded the heart building during the Kavanaugh hearings, and most recently in the avalanche of abortion stories in response to the war on reproductive freedom. Our stories, each and every one of us, has been necessary to create this moment of reckoning and make our democracy come alive. This is how healing happens, she says. We are allowing each other to see one another more clearly. We are allowing the country to see itself more clearly. And we are weaving a fabric of community care and courage that is changing the game. That is what real citizenship is all about. And not the kind that requires documents or cares where you were born, but the kind that really shows up, that speaks out and that fights for justice for all. Check it out. And now for the woman of the hour. <laughs> um, Ana Maria Archila, who is a leading advocate for civil rights, healthcare access, education, equity, and immigrant rights in New York State, but really nationally, and I would say now globally, you are a global <laughs> star. Um, she is a co-director at the Center for Popular Democracy. She is from Queens. That's right. (laughs) She is a mom. She is a deep healer, a mom of two. Um, And she, if you don't know already, although I don't know anyone who hasn't seen this video, is the brave soul who stood up to Senator Jeff Flake in the elevator and changed the course of that conversation. when When I say that, I get chills. I get chills. And so, um, and everything about who you are and how I've come to know you is just an embodiment of like who I want to be as a citizen and, mm. and, and the way that I believe democracy should work. So mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So I should confess, um, as to how we first met. Yes. <laughs> uh, because I do think it has a lot to do with this conversation and what it looks like to walk the talk and take risks and show up with courage. Um, we actually didn't meet on the floor of the Hart Building during the Kavanaugh hearings. We met um, on Park Avenue. Um, we were working on a campaign called Backers of Hate. It was led by Make the Road New York and Center for Popular Democracy. And it was all about confronting the corporations that were invested in and profiting from detention centers, prisons, and 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 the whole system around um, immigration. And um, and we and a group of people um, organized ourselves in front of the J.P. Morgan building and blocked the entrance during rush hour for no employee to enter. And we stayed there until we were forcibly removed. 
That's right. <laughs> and Anna Maria and I found ourselves paired up in a cell. That's right. We met in jail. We <laughs> met in jail. eight hours. That was the beginning of this relationship, of this love affair. Um, yes. So a lot of people ask me about like what civil disobedience feels like and direct action. Um, and, and often what I say is that it's beautiful. And so much of what happened in that cell and the way in which we connected and conversed and talked about everything. I mean, we were there for 10 hours, <laughs> you know, with a bowl that you pee in. Like, you get intimate with one another. But it goes much deeper than even the issue. Um, it's about relationship. It's about um, seeing each other heart to heart. It's mm -hmm. about love and humanity. And, and I really believe, like, that... A lot of people ask me, like, what is it like to get arrested? What is it like to do civil disobedience? And I, I wish I could describe how it feels because I don't think words do it justice. But I do believe that, like, what I experience, whether it's in the streets or on the floor of the heart building, is way more blissful and beautiful and spiritual than any yoga class I've ever taken. And so, like, how do we how do we get more people to like step out mm. and in community, in solidarity, where, from wherever they are and experience like the beauty of this work? Um, ah, it's so amazing to be here in these moments. Um, I just want to start by saying that, um, that, you know, those 10 hours that we spent <laughs> in that jail cell were, were the thing I needed in that moment mm -hmm. in my life. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about all the things. We talked about everything. We might touch on some of the things we talked mm -hmm. about. Um, and they were what I needed because um, it was, I guess that was May 1st of 2017. Yeah. Um, President Trump had just come into office a few months earlier. We had seen the Women's March and millions of people joining, many for the first time, um, and finding sisterhood, community, a sense of hope and a moment that we all recognized was a really dark moment. Um, and, and the Women's March that year really set the tone for the resistance and it set the tone for how we would engage with, with a president mm -hmm. and an administration that was so bent on um, advancing uh, the right. most hateful agenda and, um, and the most kind of uh, aggressive kind of capitalist agenda that That's we've right. seen. Um, and, and during the first months, if you remember, so many things happen in a very kind of concentrated fashion. Just a few days after the inauguration, well, the day after the inauguration, the Women's March, a few days later, the Muslim ban, That's right. immediately after, kind of several, or the rollout of a really aggressive policy agenda. The onslaught, so, really. Onslaught. And so we understood, we, these, they are not joking. They are dead serious about implementing these really hateful agenda. And May 1st has been a really important moment for the immigrant rights movement for many, many years and for workers in this country and around the world. Um, and, uh, but we had yet, I think we had yet to find our footing as a movement in the onslaught of attacks. And so I had spent all my adult life fighting for uh, my family and my community to live without fear, for immigrants to just have the basic dignity to live yeah. without the constant fear of deportation and detention. And um, in the early days of the administration, all these corporate leaders were standing right by him and kind of legit like playing as if it was business as usual, yep. as if we didn't see what we were seeing, as if we didn't see the incredible racism and the atrocities that this administration was willing to do. Um, and so May 1st was the day that we decided, nope, uh, we are not going to allow J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo and all these other, you know, apple pie banks. That we work that with are, all the time. All the time that are actually... 
um, that have a narrative of serving, you know, the American dream and at the same time that they are actually profiting, not only profiting, but actually enabling the growth and the expansion of the immigration enforcement machine, the apparatus that is now setting up essentially kind of concentration camps at the border. Um, so we blocked the entrance of J.P. Morgan Chase's headquarters um, and found ourselves in jail <laughs> and, uh, and had a lot of time to think about like what it means to, um, to use our bodies to express our outrage and not just alone, but in community and not just for ourselves, but for the people we love. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that, that what, I, what I kind of understood in that moment um, and what I have come to kind of understand again and again in the last two years is that um, um, courage is contagious. Mm-hmm. that people feel invited when they see you do something that's scary mm-hmm. for you. Um, when we saw thousands and thousands of women tell their stories of sexual assault mm-hmm. during the confirmation, the fight around the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, it was like very private act of courageous, mm-hmm. uh, of, of risk-taking um, that added up to this collective uh, moment of reckoning um, and that created an atmosphere where lots of new people were joining for the first time. I just came back from vacation last night um, and so I'm a little like kind of still kind of finding my 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 footing but last night in the airport as I'm going through um, through immigration and the customs um, I looked around and there was this young woman and she, I recognized her face. She said, you're Ana Maria, right? She had been in the heart building for two nice. weeks. She joined because she had seen other people protesting. She joined because she felt invited just by watching what was happening in the Senate building. And so then she, of course, told me the story of how she had called the Women's March to find out what she could do. And they said there might be a bus today so she packed her things the day off oh my god and then thought she was gonna go to washington she lives in new york she thought she was gonna be in washington dc for a day or two she ended up staying for two weeks and the thing that made her stay was that every single time every single day of civil disobedience every single day of joining in community she found more power in herself and she said this is the most life-affirming thing i've ever done I need to stay. And so mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. these moments of kind of display of courage that are both very personal and very collective, um, I mm-hmm. think, are the things that mm-hmm. are the, mm-hmm. the thing that invite other people to mm-hmm. join and mm-hmm. the thing that gives me hope and um, why I'm here tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about that day. Um, you confronted Jeff Flake in an elevator. Just just after, literally immediately after he had announced his support of Kavanaugh. Yes. Um, and it was you and Maria Gallagher who had never told her story before. That's right. Um, and, and what I remember of this video, and I watched it again this morning as I was preparing for this conversation, is that it was heart-wrenching. Um, not just in, like, the way in which um, you told your story, but in the way in which y'all demanded his attention. Mm-hmm. And he kept trying to duck and you were like, do not look away. You will hear this whether you like it or not. And literally over the span of five hours, the conversation was dramatically altered. And, um, and I think in that like single moment, because I remember I was at the, at the building when that happened. And then when we found out that he had shifted his position mm-hmm. because of that one moment, this like passing moment where you literally catch him by a hair in an mm-hmm. elevator, that that changed the entire conversation, I think taught us a lot about actually how this all works and how actually the actions of one person can in fact create a ripple effect. And you said um, something immediately after. You said people need to know that when they take action, when we take action together, when we force our electeds to listen to our stories, that's how we actually change this country. That struggle looks like this, 
regular people doing really scary things, things that make them cry, that sometimes scare their families. How did that moment for you change your understanding of organizing? Because that must have been a like, when you found out that that had shifted. And I also read something that your response was, someone was like, you did that. And you were like, well, (laughs) like you were shocked. Yeah. So, you know, the story of that mom, that moment is, um, there are kind of many strands to it. So that moment, the, the, the day that we caught him was the day that the Judiciary Committee was going to vote to uh, advance the process to the full Senate. And I had been in D.C. for a week, um, going kind of in and out of the protests, and I was... I'm getting ready to go home. So I showed up to the Senate building with my suitcase. Um, I showed up because a friend of mine was showing up for the first time. So I wanted to see him and kind of thank him. Um, And I only had one hour. um, And he had shown up on time. Everybody else, all the people that had been going to the protest for a long time were kind of tired and everyone was kind of like trickling in. But new people were showing up early. So Maria Gallagher showed up like you know, at 7.30 in the morning. So did my friend, the two of them met. That's how I met Maria. Um, And I, Maria spoke to an organizer from an organization called Ultraviolet who told her, go to Senator Flake's office, find two people and go to Senator Flake's office and try to talk to him. That was, first of all, that was her first day in the building. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess she had come the day before to bring coffee. And then that day she took the morning off. Uh, from work. Um, And so she found my friend, Daniel, and he found me. And I said, well, at this point, I only have half an hour. This is like as good a use of my time as anything else. Sure, let's go. I know how to get us there fast through the tunnels. Um, And and so in my mind, I was just kind of dropping them off in front of his office. Of course, I had been there for a long time. I knew that it was almost impossible to find these people, Mm -hmm. that it was like kind of an impo- that you know it's what we needed to do to try to find them and kind of getting their face a little bit and tell our stories but um but I didn't um I didn't think that that would happen so I kept telling Maria we're not gonna see him but if we see him you know she kept asking well how do you talk to an elected official um and and I said just speak from your heart that's mm-hmm. like what we have to do but we and won't she see did him. and she did um But, you know, Maria showed up because she saw people protesting. Mm -hmm. And I was there because my comrades were there. And I was there because I was inspired by all the storytelling that was happening. I had never told my story um, before. I told it for the first time just a few days before that, um, that encounter in front of Senator Flake's office. So it felt to me like... If there is one senator that I should visit before I leave the city, mm-hmm. it's Senator Flake. Um, so, uh, I mean, quite frankly, it was the... I knew after listening to Dr. Ford's testimony that emotions were incredibly high. I knew someone was going to get yelled at in that building. I just didn't know who mm-hmm. was going to get yelled at mm-hmm. and who was going to do the mm-hmm. yelling. There was a lot of pressure. Uh, there was, was like a, a pressure lot, cooker. It was a pressure cooker. There was a lot of kind of intensity that had been building over many, many days of protest, many weeks of protest. And um, and that's what Maria walked into. That's what I was kind of leaving. Um, when... A few minutes before the meeting was supposed to start, Senator Flake released his statement. We only happened to see it because there were reporters standing around the door of his office. Mm-hmm. So we saw them huddle. We read the headline and kind of like my heart dropped. And mm-hmm. I said, OK, well, we lost this fight. Um, and then I walked away, I said goodbye to my friends. In that moment, Flake, Flake walked out of his office running. So he was running, the reporters were running behind him, we were running behind them. <laughs> and like, children run around all the time. But as, as adults, we usually do not run behind people. Like, it is not a thing you do. Um, so it was just like kind of the adrenaline of that. And the fact that the kind of we had felt this intense kind of disappointment that fed what happened, like how the interaction happened. Um, And I think Maria had never said the words, I was sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. She had never uttered those words, she, to, uh, ever. Um, And 
Her family didn't know. I had never talked to my father about this. Um, and I knew kind of after, right after the interaction that this was going to get out. Mm -hmm. And both of us, but I reached out to my dad right away. Mm -hmm. Maria's mom heard it on the news. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we... Uh, I don't, I don't think that it was, and I kept saying this kind of afterwards, I don't think it would have made that, that the impact would not have been that if it had been just the two of us. It was the, uh, the collective mm -hmm. moment. It was the fact that he also had gotten phone calls from women in his life yeah. who had said to him, this is real. Yeah. What you are hearing is not the story of one woman. This is a collective experience that she's allowing you to understand through her story. Um, I understood something that um, that has stayed with me. Um, there, there is a passage in a in Tanahasi Coates' mm -hmm. uh, book um, "Between the World and Me," where he writes to his son about kind of being a black man in America. And there is a there is a little passage that says you cannot understand the kind of the reality of slavery by trying to think about it as something that happened to a mass of people. You have to think about it as something that happened to one person. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about that person in her full beauty. Mm -hmm. Who was she? Who, whose shoulder did she cry on? What mm -hmm. made her laugh? Uh, what made her smile? How did she feel at the end of the day without her children? What was it like to wake up in that reality day after day after day? You have to try to get through to a collective experience through the story of mm -hmm. one person. And that's what I think was so powerful about, um, about the way that the fight to um, prevent the nomination of Kavanaugh happened is we all kind of intuitively understood that our stories, each one of us, not just one person's story, but each one of our stories was necessary to create this mm -hmm. moment of reckoning and to invite other people to feel the power that their stories have um, to and to make our democracy come alive. It was really a moment of kind of making democracy come alive. Um, I love I love that nuance because I think sometimes we're either oriented to like the individual, like mm -hmm. the hyper ego individual, or we're oriented to collective, like yeah. it's all the collective. But I feel like what you're saying is like is like naming like the interrelationship between Adrian Marie Brown calls it like the fractal, mm -hmm. right? The mm -hmm. like the personal experience, the individual um being with in relationship to the whole and so it's not like a binary either or it's not either individual or collective it's actually like the individual experience in relationship to like that's the right. bigger thing that's larger than all of us that's right and I, I want to ask a little bit more about sort of this idea that you had mentioned around um, shared experience and collective power And and really um, reference what you had just named about, like, you, you had never told your father mm -hmm. that you were sexually assaulted as a child. So on that day, you texted him and you said, you're going to hear something that we haven't talked about, and I want you to know that I'm okay. And I had a similar situation a few days earlier where I posted about why I didn't report, the mm. hashtag why I didn't report on Instagram. And I got a call from my mother, who's an Italian woman, and she said to me, Kerry, do you have something to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> and and I also said to her, Mom, I'm okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but I do think that a lot of us who have had an experience like that can relate to having kept it to ourselves because somewhere deep down we harbored a belief that it was our fault. Yep. And I don't think that's just like individual. I think that's the way we were conditioned, right? That that's how that's our culture indoctrinated mm -hmm. in all of us. And so um I just wonder about healing because you were saying, you know, courage is contagious. And, and I know that there was, there was so much storytelling going on, radical storytelling. And it was a little bit scary too. Like, yeah. what are we unleashing here? Yeah. Um, and how do we tend to, pe like, to the way in which people are, 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 are telling stories, they're, they're excavating memories, Um, they're touching on feelings maybe that they haven't or memories that they haven't acknowledged for a long time. And how do we tend to that? And so what do you think is the relationship between doing this work, right, of, of embracing a shared experience and embracing shared suffering mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, but also like, um, and Tarana Burke talks a lot about this, right? With me too, but also really acknowledging the need to heal, right? Yeah. Like that it's not just about telling our story and taking action and getting policy reformed, that there has to also be a, um, a, a, a part of the work where we actually invest in one another's healing. Oh, I mean, quite frankly, I, I also, in the days, the many days of protest, was at times both incredibly moved and inspired and incredibly worried. Yeah. That, um, and stirred. I wasn't sh- sure. I kept asking myself, am I going to say something? Yeah. Am I going to join in this? Um, and um, I think it's because I wasn't sure that I was that I had the space, the kind of internal resources to do the healing. And, the, and, and, and it's not just my healing. It's like once mm-hmm. I release it, it's like my father's pain, my mother's pain, the people who love me. And it's like um, I think I didn't share it out of initially because what, uh, the sense of guilt, it's my fault. It must be my fault. It's ha- it has to be my fault. Uh, and then recognition that if I dare to share, it would be their pain, not just my pain. Um, and I found kind of my experience was that in the sharing, I felt um, held by this community mm. of people that had been sharing in this experience as well and seen um and not just as and seen in my power mm-hmm. it was it, mm-hmm. i don't know that i would have released this story in any other way i had kind of managed to stuff it away like put it in the darkest farthest messiest corner of my closet and leave it there for 30 years i had done that pretty well um and i don't know that i would have shared it in any mm-hmm. other context it was for me the fact that it was both an incredibly personal act and incredibly political and that it was about building the country of my dreams that allowed me to feel like this is um i can i can i can find power in this and i think i think that was very healing i remember talking to a friend a colleague of mine at the end of that day She was saying, how are you feeling? And, you know, it was like, it was a whirlwind. I had, you know, the day had been insane right after the confrontation with Flake. It was like a million cameras and phone calls from like all kinds of reporters and, you know, politicians. Like, it was just crazy. I never made it back home to pick up my child from school, of course. Um, But the thing that I said to her was, I'm so relieved my father knows. Mm -hmm. I'm so relieved I'm not holding this anymore. Mm. And and that he was able to kind of both revel in the amazingness of the moment, mm-hmm. the political moment, and also say, I, I'm sorry, I, you know, say what he needed to say. Mm-hmm. And that I kind of understood that I was, that I had confirmation that my fear that he would be in pain was correct. And that in some ways... That, that that it was important to understand that my fear wasn't an irrational fear, that he would feel pain. Um, mm-hmm. And that he was also kind of able to hold it and, and hold me. So mm-hmm. um, hold it for each other. Hold it for each other. So um, I would, you know, I, I, we haven't really been able to go back to that conversation. Um, I don't know that we, I don't know that I can speak kind of, from experience about how to, how the healing happens. I just remember feeling held by this collective of women. Women I didn't know, and not just women. um, Women and men and people of all genders who've also shared this experience of violence and the people who surrounded us and held us. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember thinking we are allowing each other to see each other more clearly. We're allowing the country to see itself more clearly. Mm-hmm. And we are kind of together creating this kind of um, supportive fabric for each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. We're not alone. Mm-hmm. 
We're going to take a break and we'll be right back with Ana Maria Archila. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to create content that matters for citizens who care. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have a radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness. And we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But making a good podcast takes a village. And so we're building one on Patreon. By joining our Patreon community for as little as $1 per month, you get lots of good stuff from us, like radical meditations, community forums, and lifestyle content that you can trust. Not only does it keep us going, but it keeps us honest and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. So check us out on patreon.com slash citizenwell and build with us as we create a culture of well-being that works for everyone. I was with you when the final vote came down on Friday. And um, we all huddled down at the floor of the Heart Building. And it was a combination of pure exhaustion and heartbreak. And people were holding each other and crying. And and you just stepped right into the center of that circle. I don't know if you remember the speech, but I got yeah. the whole thing on video. Mm. And I'm going to read a couple of things that you said because, because you were not just the catalyst of, the, of that week, but you were the salve. Mm. You said, we forced a question in this country about whether this is who we want to be. What we have been able to do is show the country that politics can and should be centered around all the stories of our lives' experiences. Our lived experiences are never one. It is a personal experience that is collective in nature. That's why the solution to all of it is collective power and people power, and we will continue to build people power. That is the only way we can build the country that we all want to live in every day, that we want all of the children to live in every day. And you had the whole place bawling (laughs) and holding each other and shaking. Um, but, but I just mm. like, I just wanted to reflect that back to you. Cause you said, I don't mm. know. And I'm like, oh no, but you know, <laughs> because you're living it. And maybe you don't have to have the words or, yeah. um, or preach. Um, but the way in which you move through the world is already embodying so much of that. So I just wanted to re- cause I, I watched that video today and I wanted to make sure I pulled an excerpt from it. Thank you. So before you were, um, speaking out about sexual assault, you were speaking out about immigration rights. Yes. And you moved here at 17. Yes. From Colombia. Mm-hmm. Um, and have been engaged in that fight really ever since. And I imagine that over the last two years, the work has felt really different given the circumstances under this administration. Mm-hmm. Um, where like citizenship is about what country you were born in or what document you have. And we're building a wall that feels a lot more like a monument to white supremacy. Yes. Um, and that's, that's actually what we're talking about as opposed to like, how do we thrive together? And so where do we go from here um, around immigration? Like what's, like what's next for us given where we're coming from? And then what is the role, what is the role for allies in this work, who have the privilege of documentation, right, on and, and of not worrying about being separated from their families or being mm-hmm. deported, like what what is that their specific role in all of this? So, um, I never thought we would be here. I have been. I'm a. I built roots in this country by joining the fight for immigrant dignity. And um, and it's been almost 20 years of doing that work. And I never thought we would be in this moment of so much darkness. Um, what Trump has done is kind of beyond our worst nightmares. He has rolled back so many protections that were kind of sacrosanct and like understood as permanent temporary protected status for hundreds of thousands of people who've been here decades. Mm -hmm. Um, He rolled back DACA. Um, 
he is aggressively kind of pursuing examinations of naturalized citizens, um, kind of creating denaturalization. Um, It's like a rollback on the rollback. Incredible. And, And I think as the immigrant rights movement, we found ourselves just on defense of the most basic things. Do not include a citizenship question in the census. Like basic Mm -hmm. things that you think would never be questions Mm -hmm. to examine Um, or defending kind of the the system that has already caused so much pain. Um, And I think that being on such defense and just finding ourselves like in these moments where, you know, the government is shut down around Trump's obsession with building a monument to... Um, xenophobia and white supremacy with the wall um, and the Democrats mm-hmm. finally kind of saying no, mm-hmm. but they have a terrible history on, mm-hmm. on enforcement. They no have ish. actually no like, ish. enabled a lot of the growth of the, of the immigration enforcement apparatus and under many administrations, both Republican and Democratic. So um, For a long time, the immigrant rights movement was focused on a framework, uh, kind of this idea of legalization. Um, That was the the unifying demand. Uh, Let's get as many undocumented people to have some status in this country. And kind of our political analysis was that in order to get that, we need to accept a lot of horrible things. The expansion of detentions, expansions of deportations, more militarization of the border. And that framework has not worked. We fought for it and we haven't been able to win that. Um, And I think we're in a moment where we think, well, what's the point of defending a framework that we, that already Mm -hmm. we don't like? Let's think big. Let's dream big. Mm -hmm. Let's think about what we want. And I think what we want is resonant with what, everyone wants. We want the freedom to stay in the place we call home, whether it is uh, this country, Mm -hmm. whether it is the neighborhood that's gentrifying under our feet, whether it is the island of Puerto Rico after a hurricane. Um, We want to be able to move across state lines without losing our health care, across borders in search of community and family, in our streets without the police breathing down our backs. We want to be able to move and we want to be able to thrive, to have the basic things that allow every single person to advance towards her dreams and her best aspirations. Education, healthcare, time to sleep and time to rest and to play with each other. Um, Music, right? Bread and roses. And, Mm. um, And I think that we have to get more so it's more of us have to see ourselves in this vision of wanting to have the freedom to move and the freedom to stay and the freedom to thrive um, and wanting to build a country that allows those freedoms to be real for all of us including for immigrant families um so for allies i think this is a moment where um Immigrant families are terrified, truly terrified. Um, And it is not easy to do what we used to do four years ago of like coming out of the, you know, the shadows and telling our stories and saying I am undocumented and and afraid is not, is the risks are much higher. Mm -hmm. Um, And so showing up for people really like with your bodies, showing up to moments of, of struggle is really important. And then I think really lifting up this vision of the freedom that the freedom that we the kind of dignity that we all deserve and the freedom that we all want. Um, the in some ways we can lean on the history of this country and the ways in which people have moved out of necessity um, and have moved to escape bondage 
and have moved to seek opportunity within mm -hmm. the borders mm -hmm. of this land and how moving has actually been essential to um, the building of this nation and uh, staying has been essential to the building of this nation. So um, I want us to join together in imagining uh, what we all want and to find common purpose in that and to show up for each other. Um, and to recognize that the fear for immigrant families is unlike anything we have confronted. And it is, and that is true for people who have some uh, status. Uh, it is true for people who have been without status for years, who now feel that much more kind of under attack and vulnerable. It, and I also hear you talking about sort of like a political philosophical split between folks who allow us to 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 um over and over and over again um consent to policies that only get us halfway there that aren't working yeah. and actually standing in a place of like this like break the table this isn't working <laughs> like we have to start complete because there's there's something around like as allies we have to be like we will not comply mm -hmm. with these like low hanging fruit band-aid solutions um, that people think are winnable, and I have like air quotes, like kind yeah. of winnable for some short term that never get us to the goal line. Yeah, I mean, yes, we have to understand what our boldest imagination looks like. Um, and we have to um, be in the world as it exists, right? And even these policies have not been attainable. Like we have not been able right. to win legalization. And I've been at this for 20 years and it's just like, it, we haven't found the way. Um, the biggest victory in that kind of along the, those lines was DACA. Right. Um, and it was a victory that was won through like sweat and tears and a lot of risk taking from a lot of young people. Uh, and it's a victory that was obviously very vulnerable to an authoritarian anti-immigrant um, dictator type uh, like Trump. So um, I feel hopeful that we have voices inside mm -hmm. the Congress that actually can speak in very clear, moving ways about how important it is for us to actually try to advance towards our, our boldest um, aspirations, mm -hmm. uh, because without them, the 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 tide is always against us. Mm -hmm. um, the kind of tendency of elected officials, Democrats and Republicans, to kind of find the lowest common denominator as as the form of as the kind of terrain in which they uh, shape policy is terrible, mm -hmm. and it plays against us all the time. Um, so I feel more, even though it's like terrible, dark mm -hmm. times, I feel a sense of hope in the voices of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan mm -hmm. and Rashida Tlaib and, and Ayana and uh, Pramila and all these um, women leaders who are choosing to just speak about our dreams and say those dreams can become policy and they only they're not policy not because they can't be but because you're being kind of lazy and your imagination <laughs> so um so i feel like that the, the time to dream is now mm -hmm. at the same time that we actually defend and create sanctuary for each other Mm -hmm. It's funny, I saw, I read something that Rebecca Solnit wrote um, in her latest book, and it said something like, um, before they could take away um, our dignity and our safety and our freedom, they had to take away our imagination. Yeah. And how important it is to reimagine, right? Like beyond the limitation of our minds, beyond what we see, beyond what we know, the more beautiful world that you keep describing yes. um, and, and how it really does require not just new ideas, but new people. And I'm just thinking about this new Congress and how refreshing that is. And like right out of the gates, we're already seeing so much power and boldness yes. and courage and guts. Mm -hmm. um, and also like um, there was a great article um, 
last week that was was talking about how like um women just don't care anymore. They're just like not, they're not tiptoeing. They're not being cautious. They're not being palatable. They're just like, fuck it. Yep. <laughs> We're just going to get the thing done. Yep. Um, no matter what it takes. And I, and I agree with you. Like, like that has been the most energizing thing for me in a really long time. And I think that too is contagious. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that uh, these like, kind of impatience with the niceties is totally necessary in this moment. We are There's not no in normal Marie times. Kondo in Congress. No. No neat and no. tidy. <laughs> it's a mess. It's not it needs to be messy. But we yes. women, we know how to deal with that. That's right. <laughs> Maya Angelou said, each time a woman stands up for herself, she stands up for all women. Mm. And I think we've learned that over and over and over again, especially since the 2017 Women's March. Yes. We've been riding that momentum for a long time. And I do think that that is connected to what we were able to accomplish in the 2018 midterm election, for sure, right? That that there was... For sure. I think that not only when a woman stands up for herself, she stands up for all of us. Um, I think... The other thing that happens is that she creates a window into seeing the world from a different place. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what has happened over the last couple of years is people uh, being invited to look at the world through the eyes of women. And it looks different. And the imagination is different. And the priorities are totally different. And the voices and the impatience is different. Um, so I, you know, it, when, when people tell their, when women tell their stories, um, they create this new reality. Um, and when women stand up and demand that we think about climate change not in these very incremental, we will never get their way, but actually we only have 10 years way. Bold. Bold and urgent um, and rooted in, not in like a kind of robotic way, but in the in the experiences of uh, real people. Um, that, that just kind of explodes the paradigm and creates a different possibility. Um, the, I... One of the things that I am most grateful for, for the kind of existence of the Women's March, the fact that that's how we got started in these moments of Trump, um, or that it set the tone, is, is that for me, it really demonstrated the really like the, how essential it is to make every effort we can to have women in leadership roles um, because we are in a moment of that of like warring factions and like the it's not surprising that the that Trump is so obsessed with um, the militarization of the border and the construction of physical barriers um, it is it in some ways it exemplifies the worst mm -hmm. of masculine mm -hmm. masculinity mm -hmm. and 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 the and the voices of the women that are now in congress um that speak about their lives and that kind of showcase their lives in a very human way um and that speak about the like our interdependence and our need to uh, see each other and uh, imagine a world where we can all have healthcare and where our planet is not destroyed and where our schools are all um, working. That um, that way of seeing the world, I think, got really kind of catalyzed and like given so much momentum with uh, with the women's march um, and the. Just like it gave so many of us the lived experience of what it's like to be led, to be led by women, 
and created a political moment and I think a real kind of shift in consciousness. Well, and I think we've learned um, through that experience and ever since, and especially I think in this particular moment right now, that women are not monolithic, mm-hmm. right? So we're not just talking about women, we're talking about all kinds of women. Yeah. Um, and and like I think a lot of the women's movements, you know, there are always heartbreaking moments of divisiveness and we're, we're experiencing one now um, yeah. around the Women's March. And and I don't know that I even understand like all of the um, uh, debate around it, but I know for me, you know, I came to D.C. because I was committed to showing up for the struggle. Mm-hmm. Because I know that this work of actually like trying to figure out how we be together in America and how we imagine better, not just for white folks and not just for rich folks, but for all folks, is messy. And it requires kind of lifting the veil and seeing the world through different eyes. And it's clunky and it's confronting and it's vulnerable. And, and I was like, you know, um, I want to I be there for that. Um, like, I feel like that's where the juice is at and that's where the transformation happens. And that's why I chose to come here. Cause I was like, no, I actually think we're at a moment where we can actually show up mm-hmm. and learn and grow together and march together and struggle together and move forward. As opposed to what I often see what happens is getting wedged in division and separation and isolation and going our separate ways and weakening right? Like dismantling the collective power that we've been building over time. And I say that also acknowledging the nuance and the harm and the pain that inevitably happens when we build movements together. And so I'm just wondering like how, um, and we're here, we're all here. We've all showed up for this. We've said yes for this. Mm -hmm. We've said yes to this conversation. We've said yes to this struggle. How do we navigate this messiness so that we can move forward? Because it's never going to be neat and tidy. It's not going to be simple. Um, The more we, I think, come into proximity with one another and come to understand each other, the more like, um, um, you know, the more rocky it might get, like it might get harder before it gets easier. And I'm just wondering, like, what is the practice of showing up for that? Hmm. Um, I actually think that there is no way around it, but through it. Like, there is no, we cannot build the country of our dreams if we don't actually experience how uncomfortable it is mm-hmm. to not know each other's history and to not understand each other's pain and to not um be confronted with the ways in which we have failed both as individuals as groups of people each other um and in many ways that's what i actually find really profoundly important about the women's march as both as an organization and kind of as a as a political uh experience in a moment it's it has been uh, a space that has uh, both the leaders of women's march and the every moment that I've experienced in in the and with the what we call the women's march which is beyond the organization um, I've always felt like there was this invitation and this urging to come and see others and recognize them as recognize what's common and what's different and what and what and really see the power dynamics and see the the kind of not turn away from the reality of um, the hierarchy of race and class and gender that exists in our society. And um, and that I don't know that we get to build a country where we all live with dignity if we don't actually confront that. And that means we're going to fight. And there are going to be moments when we're going to turn away. Um, this is one of those. Um, I feel the experience that I go back to is like a really personal experience of, and I think about you all the time, because, um, so one of the things that we talked about in that jail cell was um, 
I would, my marriage was actually kind of on the, it was beginning to kind of come apart at the seams in that moment. And, um, and I remember the thing that I learned from that, from like having to confront the person I love and hear her truth was that um, truth is a really uh, a, an, an offering of love. When you share what's true for you, mm -hmm. you're actually loving someone really deeply and taking a risk. Um, it's a dangerous thing to do. And it's dangerous because it evokes, it's uncomfortable, it's hard to hold each other's truths. It's, you want to run away, you want to take it back, There's you want to react. Mm -hmm. It's very painful. Um, but when you do it, Like you really, there is almost nothing as loving as sharing your truth. And, um, and we can't build a movement without sharing our truths and without confronting the pain and the discomfort and the rage and the reactions that happen with that. Um, and that's probably why we're here in the first place is we right. built a country on non-truths and I, mythology. We and have this idea of the melting pot. It's this like seamless amount of people dream. who are happily living together. Bullshit. Not true. Has never been. Never. Not one day. Not one day. Yeah. Um, and um, so I remember kind of talking about truth. And then I remember one thing you said to me a few like, months later when we, when we saw each other at court, when we had to show up for, for our court date. Uh, you said to me, I just so came glamorous. <laughs> from this yoga retreat and there was an infestation of like larvae oh. of butterflies. And you said like, you said like this lesson that I got from like all these butterflies, like all these larvae, these um cocoons they they're so like nasty and sticky and horrible like transformation is horrendous <laughs> actually it's not nice to look at it's not nice to brutal. be in it it's, it's brutal sticky and horrible and messy you don't want to be it you don't want to be around it you don't want to be near it you just but, want the butterfly but you want to skip the larva right but the, in order to get to the butterfly actually there is no way of around the messiness of the cocoon yeah. and the melting away of that. Um, so that, that's, I just think we're in it. Yeah. We're like deep in it. And we, uh, if we have to, the thing that we have to do is not turn away, not, not um, give our backs to this offering of love that people are doing to each, giving to each other. Um, with all the feelings and all the very righteous, legitimate, um, confront, kind of forcing each other to confront and connect. Well, and I just want to say also about that experience of transformation, because I also know this in my relationship with mm. you, is that as much as we throw down together and we went deep together and we yeah. have cried together, we have laughed hysterically. Yes. <laughs> We've been silly together. We've had also like like there there's a place for both yeah. the heartbreak and the hope, right? There's yes. a place for the joy and the pain, and actually that can exist simultaneously inside of that cocoon. Absolutely, that is like the transformational bubble that we are all in. Yeah, and so we can also like celebrate the mess. We have to celebrate the mess, <laughs> and the we mess can laugh might last about a it. Long time, and we can cry <laughs> about it, but we can't bail. Yes, we can't bail. Um, that I like. It's so funny how I, like, I really think the most important lessons of my life, some of them have come through moments of, like, struggle and kind of courageous action in collective spaces. And some of them have been just about negotiating love with the person I mm -hmm. love. And um, and uh, the other kind of really great, amazing piece of advice that some that my dad actually gave me when I was going through that process was, You can't, it's the same thing, the same idea. Like you can't actually get around the pain. You have to sit in it and let it be and let it go. You don't have to hold on to it. Mm -hmm. You can actually allow the joy to be in your mm -hmm. body and laugh and, and have silly moments mm -hmm. in, a, in, in a moment of great pain too. Mm -hmm. yeah. You can have both. You have to be present for both. Um, turning away and resisting that experience 
is not going to help you get to another place faster. Yeah. It's just going to cause you more pain. Yeah. So I think we just have to really sit through these moments of incredible discomfort and infighting and, um, and really try to hold the truths of different people and dig into what is true for us and, and give each other the space to show up. Well, I consider it a great gift that I was thrown in a jail cell with you. <laughs> it was amazing. A serendipitous, like, <laughs> miracle. Yes. <laughs> and um, I am so willing to be in the cocoon with you for however long. Excellent. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Mm. Let's keep Thanks, going. Everyone. While this episode is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to speak truth to power, to share your stories, unleash your power, and let your courage be contagious. You can get more involved in issues of equity, opportunity, and dynamic democracy by going to populardemocracy.org. And follow Ana Maria's work on Twitter at Ana Maria Archil 2. Special thanks to our producer Trevor Exter and DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $1 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts and share the love by telling your friends to check us out. 